Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. This episode is super special, and it is my first in-person interview in almost two years, and it is with a guy that has had a huge impact on my life. Let me open with this, though. As you all know, I think a deep understanding of economics is extremely important, as do many of my guests. Today, on January 25th, 2022, it is my pleasure to be speaking to Professor Kenneth Elzinga, the guy who is actually bringing this fundamental understanding of microeconomics to thousands of students every year. He was my professor for principles of microeconomics, and let me tell you, he is one of the best, if not the very best. Professor Elzinga is the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics at UVA with a special focus on antitrust. We'll be talking about all of this and more, including his deep Christian faith today. Welcome, Professor Elzinga. Thank you, Julia. It's great to be with you. Before we jump in, what is one of the most important things that people in my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Juliet, let me respond to what's a very bold question from two very different angles. I'll take the econ angle first. People your age need to realize that resources are scarce. And for that reason, trade-offs have to be made. And that means shouldering costs as well as enjoying benefits. So generally, the best way to resolve the problem of resource scarcity is through voluntary exchange because voluntary exchange usually enhances value for both the buyer and the seller. Then I'm going to take the theology angle second, even though my pastor probably would disapprove of my not putting this one first. (laughs) People your age need to realize that they're made in God's image. They're very, very special. And one purpose in their life is to know God and enjoy Him forever. Many people, especially people my age, are kind of either moving away or they just haven't grasped that. And I don't know if it's the time in our lives or my generation as a whole, but to your point about the econ way of thinking, it reminded me of, I think it was the first midterm last semester where a lot of people, it was like, what's the definition of um, involuntary wealth transfer? And everyone said taxes. That, I don't it just very, very good memories. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. You wrote a series of fictitious, fictitious, fictional mystery novels with the late Professor Bill Bright. I read them all and I truly enjoyed them. They're some of my favorite things. They're not bare bones. This is the principles of microeconomics. There's very much a story and you're very attached to the characters. In the novel, the hero, novel, novels, plural, the hero, who is a professor of economics at Harvard University, his name is Henry Spearman. He uses the principles of micro to solve mysteries. And these books aren't written under your names. Instead, they're written under the pseudonym Marshall Jevons. So what was the purpose of the pseudonym? And why did you choose Marshall Jevons? Sure. Um, When Professor Bright and I wrote our first mystery. It's called Murder at the Margin. We were not at all certain how this was going to be received and what it would do to our reputation as economists. So as a form of what economists call risk aversion, we wrote under a pen name, Marshall Jevons. And the origin of that name came in part from my 
admiration for the economist Alfred Marshall and Bill Bright's admiration for the economist and philosopher William Stanley Jevons. Now, when the Wall Street Journal published a very favorable review of Murder at the Margin, we went public with our pen name, and we're now very pleased and very open about being identified with our pseudonym. That is something to be proud of. I mean, I read them. I've recommended them to all my friends who thought that the course of intro econ was kind of boring, dry. Maybe they didn't have the right professor because I found it fascinating. <laughs> but they really, they could intake the information that way and kind of use that to understand these principles, which are so important to the individual, but also to the entire way that we function as a society. So I think it's very good what you've been doing. <laughs> what prompted the creation of this mystery series? Why a mystery series? Sure. Professor Bright, my wife and I took our vacations together. That's how close we were as friends. And on our first vacation together, I took along a bunch of Christian books. And Bright, who's a big fan of detective fiction, he brought along a sack of detective stories. And at dinner, we would get together, the three of us, and we would talk about what we'd been reading that day. And over dinner one night, Professor Bright told me and my wife that among all the different heroes, central figures, protagonists in mystery fiction, there was not one mystery book that had an economist as the hero or the central figure. Now, that didn't surprise me, frankly. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. But I told my friend Bill, because he was such a fan of mystery fiction, that he should try to write such a book with an economist as a hero. And he told me he would do so if I would join him in the project. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. I really wasn't aware of what I was getting myself into, but I agreed. So my wife went back to the States, Bright and I extended our vacation a week to brainstorm about this. This was not a hardship assignment. We were vacationing on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's the location of our first mystery novel. And there now are four novels under the pen name of Marshall Jevons. They all have the same central figure, Henry Spearman, and they all have the characteristic that the crime is to be solved using economic reasoning. It's a brilliant idea. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're the one who kind of started off this project because I would maybe would not have found it otherwise, these books that were so helpful, right? And I don't know. It's surprising now after reading them that no one thought of it before because it seems like the best way to solve a mystery because it's so straightforward. You don't look at what people say. You look at what how they behave, which is all of economics. And it just seems to make so much sense. It, like The answer is screaming at you when you look through this lens. <laughs> so Henry Spearman, he's described very specifically and in great detail, and he seems to resemble Milton Friedman, very important economist. Is he meant to be Milton Friedman and why? Sure. Anyone who knew Milton Friedman or even knew much about him and happened to read one of our mystery novels would see the connection between Friedman and Henry Spearman, the, 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 the professor, economist, detective that we created. There's even a connection in the name, the same number of syllables, same ending to Friedman and Spearman. My dear friend and co-author Bill Bright cared a lot about names and he cared a lot about the titles of our books and he's responsible for the name of our hero uh, and he's really responsible for the 
correlation between Henry Spearman and Milton Friedman. I knew Milton somewhat from my time at the University of Chicago as a visiting scholar, but Bill knew Friedman as a friend, and they were members of the Montpelerin Society together. Now, another characteristic about Bill Bright was not just his friendship with Milton Friedman, but he has the gift of being a mimic. Um, and, and so often when we were writing a scene in which Spearman was appearing, Bill would literally mimic Friedman's voice and his mannerisms to help us write the scene. And one of the highlights of, of my career, and I think Bill would say the same thing, of our career as Marshall Jevons, is we were in Milton Friedman's outer office one day waiting to see Milton, and his secretary, who had worked for him for many years, uh, told us, you really captured my boss. Those were her exact words, and I could have floated out of Friedman's office that day. He must have been ecstatic. I That's was. That's so cool. Um, so you've been a professor for many years. Many years is maybe not the most descriptive thing. It's been over half a century, right? That's correct. My friend's parents have been your TAs. Actually, two of them met while TAing for you when they were in grad school, which is so cool because I'm hearing that as I'm reading these books before I go into college and I hear this story and I'm just blown away by the amount of lives that you've touched just while being here. And you're not just a great economist. You're a wonderful teacher. I think that, and I've heard that many people have told me you've changed the course of their lives. They're interested in econ because of you. So what led you to teaching and what has kept you teaching? You could have joined the private sector, just been an antitrust consultant, but you teach. Sure. Well, Juliet, you're very kind. <laughs> Once again, I'm going to respond to that question from two angles because they both need to be put on the table, I think. One is personal and one spiritual. I'm first-generation college. <clears throat> I came from a home where higher education was not emphasized. And that's simply because neither of my parents were acquainted with that world. And I was influenced to go to college really by my boss where I worked part-time in a sporting goods store and by a high school teacher of mine. And I went to college in my hometown. Uh, I didn't have the funds to go away to school. And so in my hometown, Kalamazoo College, an econ professor took an interest in me, saw a potential that um, I didn't know I had. I don't think anybody else had ever observed it. And this was Professor Cleland, Cheryl Cleland, to whom I owe an enormous debt. And uh, he not only taught me economics and put his arm around me, so to speak, but he encouraged me to attend graduate school. And I received a wonderful fellowship that made graduate school a financial possibility for me. Now, the fellowship didn't require the recipient to be a teacher, but recipients were asked, would you be open to the prospect of being a university professor someday? And uh, when I went to college, I planned to be a fishing tackle salesman, but after being in college for a couple of years and being cared for by people like Professor Cleland, I thought, well, I'm open to being a professor. So I was awarded that fellowship. And graduate school was the first time I lived away from home. And in graduate school, there was another professor, Walter Adams. And he became a mentor. And he became a larger-than-life figure uh, to me. And Adams was famous in the field of antitrust, but he was also a master teacher. And I observed from him that one could try to excel in being both a scholar and a teacher. 
I have an enormous debt to Professor Adams. Um, so my being a teacher is in part a function of by being cared for and influenced by my teachers. But then at the theological level, I am in many ways a product of the Reformation. And in the Reformed theology, there's the concept of calling or vocation, vocare, to be called. And I believe being a college professor is my calling. Uh, in other words, people think, well, the Lord calls somebody to be a missionary or a medical missionary or a pastor. In Reformation theology, people are called to very ordinary jobs, like being a teacher. Martin Luther remarked that, that literally, he thought, the way we get milk, the way we enjoy dairy products is because God calls people to work in the dairy industry. Um, now, I know to many of my colleagues, uh, even on the floor where we're doing this podcast, what I just said would sound delusional to them or borderline crazy. But I sense a calling to be a professor. And that calling has a lot of implications for how I go about my work. That's kind of, it makes me think of how, well, so as you taught in your class about the fundamental questions that you need to answer for economics to happen. Um, we're talking about those questions like, what are we going to produce? Who are we producing for? And how is it going to be produced? And we just reviewed this with Professor Kopik in Intro to Macro. And that just has me thinking, well, maybe, maybe God is the one who's deciding how through like all the individuals, right? I don't know. Just an idea. Um, what is your philosophy when it comes to teaching, especially such a big class? Sure. Well, it's, I, I'd like to believe that it's consistent with my calling. That is, I believe my job in teaching principles of econ is to know the material well, to teach it clearly to my students. But I also believe that I'm supposed to adopt a biblical model of leading my class. And in the biblical model of leadership, the leader is supposed to, uh, one way I put it is line up last. You line up last in the biblical model of leadership. That is, I mean, I'm supposed to serve my students in my role as their leader. So as I understand the Bible, teaching leadership is not about power. That's the world's view. The biblical view is about servanthood. So the Christian faith teaches that the concept of servant leadership is what I'm supposed to try and do as a teacher. And that's the model I want to follow. Many failures and screw-ups along the way, but that's the way I want to follow in leading my class. Great response. What do you want students to take away from your class? There are so many students that take your class because there are at least a thousand students a semester, I think, on average. And a lot of them are econ majors or will become econ majors. And a lot of them aren't. Yeah. I don't really teach to the econ majors. I teach my principal's class as though it's going to be the last class in economics that my students will take, even though many of them will go on and take other classes. But that means I want to teach um, to not to prepare students for more advanced courses or, or just to focus on those who want to major in economics. It doesn't mean I want the course to be a gut. I don't think anybody thinks of Econ 201 at UVA as being a gut course. Not at all. But I want the students who, who care a lot about poetry, who care a lot about history, who care a lot about music, who care a lot about art. I want them to be very comfortable in my class, to know that 
I welcome them and they have a home in this class. It's not just for people who are going to major in economics or go into the world of business. And this probably harks back to, uh, to my roots at a small liberal arts college in my hometown called Kalamazoo College that had 1,200 students total across all four years, almost as many students as I teach in one semester of Econ 201. I want people all across the liberal arts stripe to feel welcome in my class. Um, and, and, and that's one of the reasons I draw broadly upon the illustrations that I use to try and make people feel comfortable from different fields and disciplines and interests. It is interesting, the amount of examples per principle. There was this one class period I was sitting next to my friend. She's going into public policy, but not the econ aspect. And I mean, I'm doing the econ aspect of all of that. And that's what I talk about on the podcast most of the time. And you gave multiple different examples along with this principle we were talking about. And after we were talking and the, the example that resonated with her that made her understand what the principle was, was completely different from the one that helped me. And so I just, I feel as though you really do a great job because everything you talk about, someone, no matter why they're there, will come to understand it. It's just, it's beautiful. I love thinking back. I love thinking back on it. Um, So the pundit Ezra Klein has said, quote, there's nothing more dangerous than someone who's just taken their first economics class, end quote. And that either means, oh, well, you've just taken micro, you don't actually understand econ, so you can't really assess big policy decisions, or it's you're equipped with this different way of thinking, and that's a problem. And many economists have responded to this, including John Boudreau, David Henderson. So what is your response Sure. Well, I'm reminded of the statement that if you think education is too expensive, try ignorance. <laughs> uh, students who take their first econ course and don't understand the material, they're, they're probably no more dangerous, uh, to my mind, than those who are ignorant of economics. But to those who take their first course and they begin to understand the economic way of thinking, they're very fortunate because they have a perspective on reality that many people simply lack. Tom Sowell wrote of two alternative visions. And I think one of the virtues of knowing the economic way of thinking is that one understands the potential of a world that will never be a utopia, but it need not be a dystopia either. That really connects to what we were learning in macro today, because we are talking about a conflict of visions, the Thomas Sowell book, and about the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. Listeners, I recommend you listen to Thomas Sowell. Listen, I guess if you listen to his book, listen to it, right? It's, it could be an audio book, but go read it. It really, it opened my eyes a few years ago. And I think more than ever, it's a good thing to expose yourself to. Um, there's even a teaching award, award in your name called the Kenneth G. Elzinga Distinguished Teaching Award from the Southern Economic Association. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, it's meant to honor one or more faculty members for outstanding contributions to economic education. So how does one become such a great teacher? You know, some people think being a great teacher is like having great hand-eye coordination. You're just born that way. And I don't think that's true, at least for most of the teachers I've admired and those I've learned from. Uh, 
most things in life that turn out well, there's a lot of hard work involved. And even after all these years, I still spend hours working on my lectures in Econ 201. The students can tell. They can tell if a professor is enthused about teaching them or simply going through the motions. A good teacher is one who works very hard in preparing before the class, is really seriously engaged during the lecture, and then wants to continue engaging the students after the lecture. Doesn't just walk out and say, okay, that's done. Now, how does a professor know if he or she has given a really great lecture? Juliet, there's a surefire test when the students carry you out of the classroom on their shoulders and they parade you around the grounds. It doesn't happen very often, but that means you've done a really great lecture. Physically doing that? like it's a, carry you wow. out on their shoulders. When you see that on the grounds, you'll say, now there's a professor who's given a great lecture. That's beautiful. <laughs> so the course you're most famous for in your biggest class is your introductory microeconomics course. And that, as I mentioned, you have on average, about a thousand students. What's so special about the material covered in that class? Well, economics, as you've probably heard, has been called the dismal science. That's what Carlisle called it. <clears throat> and there are people who say, maybe tongue in cheek, that the social value of economists is that they make dentists and accountants look like the life of the party. And I've been at social events more than once where I'm introduced to strangers as somebody who teaches economics. And a person will say, oh, I took economics in college. I hated it. So economists, I think, start at a disadvantage. Um, and I try to turn that disadvantage into a plus factor. What if you went to the dentist thinking this is going to be awful? That was your preconception. And then it turned out to be congenial. Well, I think maybe an econ class can be like that. I know economics is hard for, for many people. But I wanted to realize that if they work at it, they're going to get a perspective on the world that most people don't have. They'll be somewhat unique in that regard. And I want them to observe that, well, I don't think economics is the most important thing in the world, that it's really worth their attention. It's a very interesting subject, and I'm going to work hard to try and make it interesting and relevant for students. So what are the challenges of being a professor today, especially as opposed to the past? I've witnessed a lot of changes at the University of Virginia and just generally in the world of higher education during all my years on the faculty. And if I had to single out one, there are others, but if I had to just single out one, it would be the diminished respect for free speech. The, the diminished respect for simply the rough and tumble of the marketplace of ideas. The fear that not just faculty, but students have of what's called the cancel culture or being accused of a microaggression and then the bureaucracy that monitors and potentially sanctions free speech. Now, in one sense, nothing is ever really new under the sun. William Buckley wrote about this years ago with regard to his experience at Yale, but I doubt if even Buckley could have imagined how his concern back then has taken shape today. 
listeners, if you want to learn more about free speech, why it's important and the war against it or hate speech, even here at the University of Virginia. I talked to Nadine Strassen about what happened in 2017, and that is called Nadine Strassen on Hate Speech. I recently talked to Jonathan Rausch about the culture of free speech and how we need that, and that's called Jonathan Rausch on the Constitution of Knowledge. So go check out those episodes. Yeah, those are two very important people on this subject, people worth listening to. Yeah, go take a listen. When I took your class, you taught us about the stock market and, quote, becoming rich the econ way, end quote, which is not something that you'd necessarily find in a textbook for econ. How have the topics that you cover, how have they changed over time and why do you change them? Sure. Well, that particular class or lectures were, was a good example. When I first started at teaching, teaching at UVA, I had lots of students who thought an introductory course in economics was going to be about how to make money in the stock market. They thought that's what economics was. And I had to explain to them that that is not what the discipline of economics was about. But over the course of my time at UVA, the, 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 the enormous inroads of economic analysis into the understanding of how the market for stocks and bonds works, that has been so profound that now I can teach the efficient markets hypothesis. I can teach a theory of economics that has been implemented into financial instruments like index funds. So in a way, Econ 201 now can have its cake and eat it too. I can teach economic theory and students can learn how to become wealthy if they choose to do so. Yeah, it's definitely very helpful for me where I very much have thought like, oh, I'm not I, I don't know anything about this, but now that there's econ involved, I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll give it a second chance because I know econ at least a little bit. Um, let's talk about antitrust. That's one of your big things. You just, you know a lot about antitrust and you work in antitrust and it comes across in your lectures when we go over antitrust, even briefly, that you are a true expert when it comes to this and you have experience with it. So for those who don't know, can you tell us what antitrust is? Sure. Um, it's called antitrust in the United States. Increasingly, it's called competition economics. And it's a branch of economics that's, that focuses on how markets behave under conditions of monopoly and under conditions of competition. So for example, economics teaches that cartels generally reduce consumer welfare. Group of firms get together, instead of competing on price, they collude on the price. So antitrust as a body of law is concerned with business practices like price fixing. But it goes way beyond that. It's not just price fixing. Antitrust is connected to intellectual property law, merger law, vertical agreements between firms that have buy-sell relationships, bundling of products. Uh, antitrust is even connected to constitutional law. So one way to think about antitrust is it's the field of economics that intersects with the body of law that tries to promote consumer welfare. That's the bottom line goal of antitrust, or should be. It's a good description. It seems to me that the understanding in the world of antitrust, especially when it's brought to court, that the understanding is very narrow and it's often incorrect in the way that competition is thought about and talked about. Can you explain what antitrust cases and legislation often get wrong? Sure. Julia, that 
that question is, is, is both simple at one level and complicated at another level. Uh, to try and get at it, let's take the word exclusion. Exclusion. On the surface, exclusion sounds bad. I mean, who wants an economic system in which some firms are excluded from the marketplace? So antitrust, economics and law, takes the exclusion of competitors very seriously. But what makes antitrust complicated is to ask the question a little bit differently. Why are some firms excluded? Well, some firms are excluded from being successful because their price is too high or their quality is inferior or they're trying to copy the intellectual property of another firm and they're excluded because they don't have those intellectual property rights. So if imagine a world if you and I were rivals in some particular market and you come up with an absolutely brilliant advertising campaign about your product, well, my sales will go down. And in some sense, your advertising has excluded me from people who used to be my customers because they're now your <laughs> customers. But if consumers like your advertising better than mine, then from a consumer welfare standpoint, maybe I ought to be excluded so when a business firm can complains that it's being excluded from the marketplace by another firm, antitrust economists want to look at that very, very carefully and try to answer the question, well, why is the firm that's complaining being excluded? Is it anti-competitive or is this actually competition, the very process itself, deploying resources to the better competitor and away from the, the less efficient firm? And we want to be very careful that the government doesn't step in and misuse antitrust to try and protect the inefficient or the laggard competitor. It's interesting that antitrust, especially recently, has been making a comeback. And I don't know. I just I've been seeing it more. We learned, oh, antitrust legislation, it's, it's on the decline, like it's not happening, but it's kind of coming back. How do you explain this resurgence? Yeah. Well, it's been very interesting for me as a person who specializes in antitrust to see antitrust front page news. I think there's several reasons for that. I think part of the resurgence is because some of the firms in the tech sector, uh, firms that essentially offer a platform rather than sell a traditional product, they become very, very large, very prominent with millions and millions of consumers and customers around the world. And this whole economics of multi-sided markets. I, I've introduced that in the principles class mm -hmm. to you. I didn't even talk about that a few years ago. It's somewhat new and people are confused by it. Some people have conflicting ideas, whether this is good for consumers or not. So that partly is what has driven the resurgence of, of antitrust, but also America has always had an affection for small business goes back to Louis Brandeis, maybe back to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Thomas and that kind of neo-Brandeisian populism, I think, has, has caused a resurgence of interest in antitrust as well. Your work is also known for having influenced the U.S. Supreme Court, which is such an impact. Wow. To its five to four decision in 2007 that resale price maintenance, which was formerly treated as illegal under the Sherman Antitrust Act, may offer benefits to its consumers. So can you explain to us what resale price maintenance is, but also just talk more broadly about the case? Sure. Working on that case um, as an economic expert uh, and a consultant for the defendant, 
It's a firm called Legion, was one of the highlights of my life. The case itself was a challenge because my job was to explain how a contract, a business practice that Legion had, part of its business model, that prevented the discounting of its products by its retailers. How could that increase consumer welfare? It's an interesting question. A firm has a policy with its downstream vendors that they may not discount the product. There cannot be price competition on the product. How could that possibly help consumers? Well, it wasn't obvious on the face of it, but it was obvious to antitrust economists. It had been for some time. Uh, Price cutting, discounting can harm consumers if it encourages free riding by the discounter. And if it reduces the downstream amenities that consumers value when they shop at retail. And I was able to show that eliminating discounting actually increased output. Uh, It allowed Legion, which made um, women's fashion accessories, it allowed the firm to actually compete better with rivals like Coach. And the court adopted this economic logic. Uh, In doing so, it overturned an antitrust precedent that had been around for almost 100 years. And the court did this. It was a close call, five to four. Um, I was, as you can imagine, thrilled by the result. But if I can sort of put as a footnote here, I I remain, even to this day, disappointed that we didn't get Justice Stephen Breyer's vote. Um, I mentioned in my Econ 201 class, uh, you were there one day, Mm -hmm. that Justice Breyer, among Supreme Court justices, is a pretty good economist. We know that from other things that he's written. And he knew the economic analysis in this case, but he chose not to let economics dominate his vote. That's a disappointment to me, but I'll take the five to four win. (laughs) Take it with pride. It's such an accomplishment. I mean, I hope to do anything that significant. Well, I want to say, just for the record and for your podcast and for your listeners, I was essentially just a retailer of that idea. That idea had been developed at the University of Chicago some time ago. Many, many economists knew it. I just happened to be the one selected as the economic expert to try and teach that lesson in the context of that case. And fortunate enough to be working with a, an entrepreneur who was willing to run the risk and incur the, the great litigation expenses of taking a case all the way to the Supreme Court, being advised by antitrust lawyers. This was probably a fruitless endeavor because the precedent against his business model had been in place for decades. You must have taught it very well then. (laughs) So kind of turning back to being a professor, um, why UVA? It's a state school. It's a really good state school. It's Virginia. I love it here. But why UVA? Sure. The very short answer to that question, Julia, my mentor in graduate school, I mentioned his name earlier, Professor Walter Adams, wanted me to accept an offer from the University of Virginia. In fact, I'm not even sure if wanted is the right word. Insisted might be the better word. And he made a forecast at the time that I thought was ridiculous, notwithstanding the great admiration I had for him. I still recall his words. He said to me when he was encouraging me to accept an offer from the University of Virginia, he said, Mr. Elsinga, you will stay there the rest of your life. End quote. And that was more than 50 years ago and almost 50,000 students later. And so, so far, his forecast looks like it's going to be accurate. 
I'm glad. I mean, I'm so glad that I've had the honor and the opportunity to be a part of your class and also just to be interviewing you now. So to go on with you being here on grounds at the University of Virginia, you have a reputation for being a Christian. How is your faith informed and enhanced not only your teaching, but your research? Sure. Uh, I became a follower of Jesus in graduate school, or at least I encountered Jesus as the Christ in a, in a, in a different, in a very profound way. And I knew this change in my life shouldn't affect only what I did or where I was on a Sunday morning, but it also should affect where I was and what I did on a Saturday evening and, and really throughout the rest of the week. And much of my life at UVA has been a matter of trying to understand what that means. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the academy? And, and, and as I mentioned in my earlier answer, in terms of my teaching, I've endeavored to be a servant leader in the classroom because I think that's what the biblical model of Jesus was. Actually, in the Bible, there's a, an account of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. So one implication of being a follower of Jesus is asking myself, what would it mean for you, Ken Elsinga, to wash the feet of your students? That is, how do I serve them at that sort of level? Um, the broader implication is another Bible precept. Um, whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do it as unto the Lord. And that's a very interesting Bible verse for a professor because I work a lot with words and I do deeds as well. And so for me, this means that the teaching and the research I do should have all the integrity and quality that in some sense, that's hard to understand or picture that I could present it to the Lord. Whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do it as unto the Lord. Now, many faculty members at UVA do very high quality research and, and, and their deeds of teaching, the way they teach, it's just outstanding. And they may not use the Bible language of doing it as unto the Lord. But for me, as a follower of Jesus, I find it encouraging. Uh, I find it challenging. I find it sobering that there's a Bible principle that connects to how I spend so many hours of my life to do my work as unto the Lord. And, and one implication of this is that if I receive some honor for my work, that I'm reminded that this is not all about me. Uh, it's about the, the one who called me, who gave his life for me. And so doing work on the Lord makes work for me. Um, I don't know if there's an English word for this. It's, a, it's the confluence of being humbling and also exciting. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.